that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. In recognition of Black History Month, we bring you a special documentary on Vancouver's original black neighborhood, Hogan's Alley. That's on the program. Stay with us. Other Canadian cities. Vancouver is a vigorous social and industrial complex which must adapt to the constantly changing pressures of population and growth. New and larger industrial plants, hospitals, apartments and offices make Vancouver's ever-changing skyline a symbol of its civic progress. Blight is death to a city. And these dwellings, built with such hope and care at the turn of the century, are dying board by board, and the property they occupy dies with them. Most of Vancouver is kept strong and healthy through the normal process of land and building renewal. But in areas such as this, nothing happens except dilapidation and decay gets worse each year. Property values fall and blight is the result. What does this condition mean to a city in terms of its physical and human resources, its health and crime rate? What does it cost to police this area, to provide social assistance, fire protection and water? Are sufficient taxes collected from this area to pay for these services? How is this worn out area to be renewed? The answers to these and many other questions were not known, but it was clear that unless positive action was taken, the problem of blight would never be solved. That was a 1964 clip from a National Film Board of Canada film called Build a Better City. 
And it talks about a history of Vancouver that we often don't spend the time talking about. It's a history of urban renewal. It's a history of displacement. It's a history of communities that battled to preserve themselves, to preserve their neighborhood, to preserve their communities. And this period in Vancouver's history is something we often don't think about and we often don't know about. As we celebrate Black History Month here at CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver, we are proud to bring you a radio documentary of the stories, memories, and history of Vancouver's original black community, Hogan's Alley. We are telling the story of Hogan's Alley in three parts. We begin as CITR producer Ariel Fernier interviews Wade Compton. Wade Compton is a Vancouver writer whose books include After Canaan, Essays on Race, Writing, and Region. Performance Bond, Blues Print, Black British Columbian Literature and Orature, and 49th Parallel Psalm. Compton is also co-founding member of the Hogan's Alley Memorial Project, an organization dedicated to preserving the public memory of Vancouver's original black community. He's also one of the publishers of Commodore Books. Wade Compton teaches English composition and literature at the Emily Carr University of Art and Design and Coquitlam College. He was the 2011 Vancouver Public Library Writer-in-Residence. What is Hogan's Alley? Um, well, it was a neighborhood from about after World War I up until um, about the 40s or 50s. It was a multi-ethnic neighborhood, but it had a uh, concentration of black folks who lived there. And so it was really kind of the only area in, Van- in Vancouver's history that had that. Where exactly was Hogan's Alley the location? Um, yeah, there's this... Um, when I was first trying to figure that out, there's controversy because people were saying... Some people were saying it ran east-west and some people were saying it ran north-south. And it took me the ages to figure out that they were basically both right because it's a it was a T-shaped alley, but that because of the viaduct that uh, was put there in the late '60s, um, that's lost. But you can't really see that there would. You can't see the logic of how there would have been a T-shaped alley there. Um, but it was, and so uh, the part of it that ran east-west went from uh, right from right behind Main Street east all the way to Jackson Avenue. And then the part that ran north-south was the um, bit that's still there um, that uh, cuts across Union Street and um, and prior in the south. And so the the main bit that that's, um, uh, runs out of where the viaduct is is between Union and prior. And when the when the viaduct was built in the seventies, was that is that what destroyed that community, or was the community still there as much when when the viaduct went up? Well, yeah, it's it's more like the, the planning for the viaduct. And, um, uh, well, the planning for two things, slum, slum clearance and urban renewal, and, um, and the freeway project, um, 
the planning, the urban renewal and slum clearance planning goes all the way back to the 30s. And so there were steps that were, that were put in motion um, back then that led up to the ultimate uh, dovetailing of the idea of urban renewal with this freeway plan. It was eventually what um, plumped the viaducts down there. And it was going to be a much larger and much worse plan that would have cut uh, Chinatown in half by putting a freeway right through it all the way to the Burrard Inlet. Um, but so it wasn't, by the time they finally actually started building the viaduct, um, the black community was mostly gone. And so there were still a few people around, but it was, the heyday of it was more like the 40s and, and the 30s. And so it was the, um, yeah, the planning that instigated people um, starting to move out and test the waters in terms of uh, whether integration was going to be possible. And it was, um, which I think is because of Vancouver's peculiar racial characteristics. And that um, there was no official segregation against the black community. That was all directed at Asians and First Nations people. And so, you know, blacks were able to kind of make this run up the middle. Although Hogan Valley was a sort of unofficial segregation, um, you know, that was, that kind of uh, altered um, you know, with, you know, I, I think it had a lot to do with the end of World War II, the incipient civil rights movement in the States, um, and a bunch of other factors. Mm-hmm. And do you think, um, how did you come to discover that this neighborhood did exist? Because, um, yeah, how did you come to discover it existed? Um, well, yeah, my, I mean, in my, my parents' stories about Vancouver in the 50s, they, they always talked about um, Main Street and the nightclubs that were on Main Street and, you know, the black culture that was there. Um, but they never used the term Hogan Valley. And, um, and I didn't really understand from their stories that there was a community that lived there. Um, even though some of, the, you know, some of the people in that community were, are like family friends, people who, were, who worked with my dad and things like that. But I think it's because we never lived down there. It just wasn't, you know, clear to me that that was a residential neighborhood too. But I knew about nightclubs around there. But the first time I ever heard the term Hogan Valley was in um, uh, Andrew Fatona and Cornelia Weingarten's uh, documentary, and uh, you know, which which is monumental as a source for uh, Black history in Vancouver. Um. And uh, why, why do you think that after that neighborhood dissipated, there wasn't another neighborhood that emerged as the um, main black neighborhood in the Lower Mainland? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a mystery. I can only speculate on that. And I, I think that it's... Um, You know, I, I think it's a few things. I don't think it's any one thing that made it possible for the black community to integrate. Partly it's small numbers. Partly it's what I said about a different kind of racial hostility that wasn't primarily directed at black folks. Um, you know, which also kind of made for a black community that was a sort of model minority in a way, right? That, you know, people were, um, you know, which I think says a lot about you know, how racist regimes create the problems that they then blame on the communities that they're um, presiding over, you know. I think in this community, it was sort of like, you know, there wasn't a lot of chaos expected from the black community, and so 
you know, the racism was kind of haphazard. And then when the moment came where it was sort of possible to try integration again, you know, people seized upon it. But then even going way back to the early roots, like back to the 19th century, and some of the communities of Hogan's Alley were from the state, and others were from, uh, you know, the original migration of, of uh, black pioneers to uh, Victoria and Salt Spring Island. You know, those early black communities were ardently integrationist, and, you know, their politics were, you know, as soon as we get there, we won't set up parallel institutions. We'll do, you know, whatever is possible to uh, integrate into whatever institutions are there. And so, you know, that's been a kind of long-term um, strategy in British Columbia for black folks. And so possibly, you know, it's a mix of a lot of those things. But, um, you know, for whatever reason, that was their moment and they, they seized it. Do you think that that has something to do with the fact that um, Hogan's Alley was forgotten about for a period in time as a neighborhood that existed? Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, it, that, well, it wouldn't be continuous with the time, right? I mean, the, so it, it, it's, there was no big one, you know, one big exodus all in one year or something like that. It seems like people kind of trickled out of Hogan's Alley gradually and then moved to various places around the Lower Mainland. So, you know, I don't... The memory of Hogan's Alley would have faded, you know, just as slowly while that was happening. So, you know, I, I don't think that's it, but... Um, but that is what's happened, you know, it's become this sort of semi-mythical place that people, you know, don't, you know, don't, often don't know existed or don't know where exactly it was or what it was like. And um, I think that's largely because it was so, un, you know, you know under-documented and maligned in its own time, you know. And um, you see that with the, with the elders, there's sometimes this kind of disconnect between, you know, my generation and their generation. And that we're fascinated by the fact that there was this, this kind of pseudo-segregation of the black community. And we're interested in all those institutions and things. And some, some of the elders, you know, also are, um, you, you know, speak about the community in, the, in those terms and, you know, in an analytical way. But others that we've encountered have just been kind of like, you know, you're lucky you didn't have to live under those conditions. Just forget about it. And, um, you know, didn't have a lot good to say about it, but, you know, that's probably true of most communities. Some people have positive experiences and some people have negative experiences. So, you know, it, it's hard to say. I mean, our job is kind of to, to be careful not to romanticize it and sort of listen to, you know, all the different, um, you know, voices that came from that place, you know, you know try to draw, um, an understanding out of that kind of variety of, of, of experience. Mm -hmm. So why, for you, um, why is it important to have things like the Hogan's Alley Memorial Project? What, why, why is it important to you to have people remember Hogan's Alley, the location, and have that as kind of a, a symbol? Yeah, I think, I mean, what it's, <clears throat> what it's a symbol of is the presence of black folks here and, you know, both in the past because, you know, our presence in the past is often ignored or, you know, not fully understood or appreciated. And, you know, that contributes to the, 
a perception of blacks in the present as, as well. I mean, I think that, you know, the perception of, of blacks in BC is one, that, that we're not here at all, uh, or two, that if, if we're here, we're this kind of foreign, recently arrived community that's sort of, per, you know, perennially foreign, like it's no matter how long you've, you've been there, it's like, you know, the perception is that it's recent. Um, you know, and the, you know, a study of Hogan's Alley, you know, it disproves all of those. So there always was this presence. It was vibrant. Um, and, you know, it's as old as this city. You know, there were black folks here from the very, very start. And so, I mean, I think it's a lot, a lot of it's just a, just a kind of, like all anti-racism, it's trying to give people an accurate um, perception of, you know, of, of the people that you're talking about. So, you know, that's why I don't think it's about heroicizing or, you know, um, valorizing, really. It's about just getting a real understanding of what this community really was like. And it was just like every other community, you know. It, had, uh, it was just as complex and interesting and all of that. Um, you know, to me, that's anti-racism, giving an accurate picture of the black presence in this city and in this province. Mm-hmm. Um, so now it's, it's funny because even though that neighborhood was fading, the Georgia Viaduct very obviously hurt that neighborhood, I think. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I was wondering what what you thought of um, what they what they should do now with with now that it's here and they're thinking about maybe making it a walkway or who knows what they're going to do with it. What do you what do you think they should do with it? Yeah, I I, I think that the, the lesson of studying Hogan's Alley is that <clears throat> you know what they failed to do back then was um, you know let the people in the neighborhood control their own fate. And that's why you got this, um, you know, stupid, inhuman plan that didn't work and failed and um, destroyed a community, you know. And so, I mean, I, the model that I'm interested in as a sort of starting point anyway is, is Jane Jacobs and some of her very early observations of the failure of urban renewal and that, um, and the notion you know, which should be a very kind of simple, basic idea that people who live in the neighborhood understand it best and um, and love it and have its its best interests at heart, and they're the ones who are going to have to live with the consequences of whatever planning, um, you know, ideas are put in motion. So I, I think that the people in the neighborhood should decide what should be done with the viaducts. And it's important to say I don't mean the owners; I mean the people who live there, whoever they are, the renters. You know, whoever is living there and will live with the consequences of whatever happens, those are the people who should make that kind of decision. Personally, you know, I mean, I think um, to preserve the character and make it easier to live in that neighborhood, social housing would be a good idea. Um, You know, but we'll see what happens. I went down to St. James Infirmary Saw my baby there Stretched out on a long white table So sweet, so cold, so fair 
Let her go, let her go, God bless her. Wherever she may be, she can... That was CITR producer Ariel Fernier speaking with Wade Compton, a Vancouver writer whose books include After Canaan, essays on race, writing, and region, as well as Bluesprint, Black British Columbian Literature and Orature. Compton is also co-founding member of the Hogan's Alley Memorial Project, an organization dedicated to preserving the public memory of Vancouver's original black community. You can find out more information about Wade Compton's work at wadecompton.com. This is a special radio documentary from CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver as we celebrate Black History Month. We are bringing you stories, memories, and the history of Vancouver's original black community, Hogan's Alley, in three parts. In part two, CITR producer Ariel Fernier talks with Chick Gibson about his memories growing up in the neighborhood as a child. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Vancouver's east side, uh, between Maine and Gore, uh, Powell and Pryor in the area. Okay. And um, at the time, there was a there was a fairly solid um, black community there, right? Oh yes, they had their own church and uh, the Eastern Star Group, and you know, it was a quite uh, a social network there. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And did you know a lot of people in the area when you grew up there? Yes. So you 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 were you were good friends with your neighbors and all that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, with the kids, they all played quite a bit. The adults, not so much. You know what I mean. Yeah, sure. Um, and uh, your, your sibling, I guess, how many siblings do you have? Three. Okay. And uh, the, the the three of you were all kind of involved in the neighborhood a bit? Yeah, we were. We used to be the, in the summertime, there was the melting pot that was called the uh, McLean Park. And uh, that was just uh, up from Main Street, uh, I think it was two blocks, and a uh, block uh, north of Pryor. I think there's a now housing, uh, low rental housing uh, complex in there now. Okay, and when did you um, when did you move out of the neighborhood? Oh, let's see now, it'd be about 1955. At that time, there was still a, a pretty strong that that community that you grew up in was mostly still there. Oh. Very strong. Uh, they, you know, the women there were were a lot. They had their all little houses, and they were very proud. They kept them up quite well. And the city tried to uh, take the land away, and uh, you know, uh, do some different types of things with it. And they cut off them. You know, the chances of getting mortgage money because of it, and all kinds of things. It was quite a hardship for the people, but they fought and saved the area. They weren't going to give up their little homes. There was no place for them to go, really. Yeah. When the viaduct went up. Did yeah, it was you, part of it, yes. Um, that was, but that was, it was even before that they were oh, trying to push people out of that area. That's right. They had already had uh, stopped. You couldn't get a more remortgage your property, stuff like that. They had to take personal loans out to to survive, you know, and keep their, their, their properties and stuff like that because they couldn't get a decent mortgage. Nobody, no bank would give them money. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they uh, stormed City Hall, you might say. The, the little ladies went up there and... They finally uh, gone to all the meetings and picketed when they needed to. And uh, there was one uh, Chinese lady, I remember her name, that speared the thing up. She was just no way they were going to put her out of her home. And uh, 
she was at one of the uh, meetings I was at down in the um, Eastern College. No, not Eastern College. The old um, uh, museum there on Maine and um, Hastings. Um, I forget the name of it now. But uh, she was talking about the different uh, challenges they had and what they did. I was I was really quite you know impressed with what they did. Yeah. Um, I was just a kid then. I was, you know, when that was going on. This is happening in, in the early 40s, in the, well, just after the war. And why do you think that the city was so keen to push people out of that neighborhood? Well, the land actually was quite valuable, but because of the neighborhood, they couldn't get the value out of it. And then they had a lot of people wanted to put in, uh, you know, go the, the route of the small, you know, those big housing for people build it and then, you know, make it a, more of an industrial area and stuff like that. And they weren't having any of it. And, of course, the Vidic was going through. It would be a bunch of highways, uh, you know, like ramps and stuff like that coming off and highways. So the area would be all given up for transportation so you could drive through the city faster and uh, they could um, attach the Vidic up to uh, First Avenue I think it was one of the ideas that you'd have a highway coming in. There was some talk about putting a scenic highway in as well along the water. Right. And uh, so when they, when I know that they didn't, thankfully didn't build the highway, but they did manage to get that Georgia viaduct in. Uh, how was that for you when you, when you found out that well, that was going to go through? I, what they did is they they took Hogan's Alley and they just built the high the the road right over top of it, mm-hmm. and tore down all the houses, and that was the end of that that, you know, period of Vancouver, and they got that done, but they didn't destroy much more than that. Prior streets, you know, existed after that first block from Maine, <clears throat> where they come off the Vada and go on prior. So they just really lost the one block, which they figured was the victory, because at that particular time, there were a lot of illegitimate, you might say, <laughs> businesses in that area. Um, yeah, it's funny, on the phone, your sister briefly mentioned that the um, gambling houses and you know ladies of the night uh, had their uh, uh houses there as well so um for you now why do you think it's important though even though some of the the people who are on that one block were kind of i mean there were people it was residential as well right were, it was residential yeah so um but why? So why is it important for you now to remember that part that was destroyed? What do you think that the when people talk about you know how they have the Hogan's well, Alley Memorial Project and they it's it's funny how Hogan's Alley has kind of become a focal point for that neighborhood that used to exist. What what do you think is the purpose of remembering Hogan's Alley? Well, I think it 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 there were a lot of people you know. Um, Congregated in the, close to the area, they got identified with it. It was sort of a sort of a tough thing, you know. Well, I I don't only live two blocks from Hogan's Alley, the old, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but basically, the you know, there was a lot of rough stuff going on there, but nothing going on during the day. They had horse paddocks and all that in there as well, and stables, and junk dealers, and you name it. So it was nothing really exciting except that people may you know there was a uh, sort of a myth about Hogan's Alley and every city had to have one you know it was a, the and uh, so that's where it was and of course it was also a place for people to go and do illicit things gamble and whatever 
and uh, not no, and the police, police wouldn't bother you. Mm-hmm. I heard. Um, uh, I I heard that the police actually used to hang out in some of those places. Oh, they did. They gave us to go down to a guy called Buddy White's and uh, play poker all night. And he had a triple threat there. You know, he'd serve drinks, bootlegged. He had the girls drop by. They didn't stay there. Drop by if they and uh, knock on the door and see if anybody was interested in going upstairs <clears throat> and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the police used to hang out there a lot. Even the uh, the chief of police would hang out there. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty bad, really. <laughs> So when you were, um, you know, you were a kid back then, so it was, oh, yeah. I, I guess, I guess uh, Buddy White's place probably wasn't your primary hangout. Where did you like No, to- I didn't hang out there, but when I was about 16 or 17, I used to uh, go in there and do some cleaning. And uh, sometimes I would, you know, just go in and do the dishes and sweep the floors and that kind of stuff. And uh, sometimes, and Buddy would want to go to bed, so he would just sit in and watch the game for me while I go to sleep, so I'd make sure that they... I just make sure that the ante was put in properly and cut the game then while he was asleep and he'd sleep for two or three hours and get back up in the game again and the game just went on and on. I mean, 24 hours and there'd be people coming and going and it's like Vegas. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, it was a pretty, but what, besides, besides Buddy's, Buddy White's place, um, what what other kind of places do you like to hang out? Oh, in there, well, we used to just hang out in, in, in there's a couple of restaurants we went to, and uh, the park, of course, in the summertime. And uh, we hung out mostly outside, you know, on the street corners and stuff like that. Uh, down below where we lived, there was a, a restaurant, and um, a Chinese restaurant. We used to go in there and have um, pop. And the guy was pretty good. He'd let us hang out there. There was no, no business going on, and he didn't have the tables. And then we went to <clears throat> to the couple of boys clubs further down on um I'll see what ja- was it Jackson? I think it was Jackson Avenue. And it was further down than that we used to go to as well. The Rufus Gibbs and stuff like that. It was a club there. We go down there in the wintertime and play basketball. So when you go down there now, is there anything left of, of the kind of neighborhood you remember? No. No, it's pretty well all gone. Some of the little houses on Hawks Avenue, Heatley, and uh, they, they're still there. They're little, they're little tiny the row four houses? or five hundred row houses. Yeah, just very small ones. They're still there. That's funny. My friend uh, lives in one of the ones on Hawks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we went when last time we went to the, uh, the the cultural call. They went into a couple of artists that live there, and they're, they're cute little places, uh, you know. And they've got them fixed up really, really quaint. Mm-hmm. And the uh, <clears throat> Um, I remember the big thing that I remember most about the area is that when the war broke out in 1939, I was just in school, I think it was in grade one or two, and uh, my best friend was a Japanese kid called Akira, and uh, we used to, I used to be, I, we lived on Pryor then, I used to come up Pryor Street, go up the, Dunleavy, over to his place, pick him up, and we walk up to school together. To Strathcona, and one morning I get up to go to see him, and knock on the door, and there's 
nobody there. We used to play, and he lived right across from McLean Park, so we'd play down there. We'd play tennis and basketball and, you know, just have a ball in the summertime. <clears throat> and there was no answer. And I knocked and knocked, and the lady next door says, oh, they've gone. And I says, what do you mean gone? You know, I don't I don't know what you mean. So, yeah, the, the uh, soldiers came, and they, they, they've gone to camp. And those were the concentration camps they had for the... Yeah. yeah. So I, I just, I, I just fell apart. I couldn't believe that they did this to this family. I mean, you know, they were just good Canadian people. Anyway, that was a rude awakening for me to find out what the world was really like, you know, and what was going on. And you know, the war was right, quite frightening because uh, the Japanese uh, in '42 were up in Aleutian Islands, you know, and <laughs> they were pretty close. Yeah. So it was one of those, it was a little different times than it was now, and, uh, you know, people were concerned. And then, of course, then not just after the war, they started this on, on our neighborhood to try to take it away from us. And uh, the Chinese and black and Italian and Ukrainian women, they weren't having any part of that. <laughs> yeah. Boy, if, 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 if the Japanese would attack those women, they'd have run them off, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were strong and determined, and uh, yeah, it's wonderful. I guess I was just wondering about um, just the kind of societal racism, because I guess it was quite hard for black people to get jobs in that time, I guess. It was hard for anybody of ethnic uh, heritage in, in that neighborhood to get a job. And the jobs they got was were basically low-level jobs, you know, laboring jobs, uh, working on the on on the, the, the uh, candy dancing on the gang and the gangs putting in trails and ties and and uh, that kind of thing. <clears throat> actually, the most of the blacks worked uh, had actually uh, pretty good jobs as as porters because they you know they they had made fairly good money and uh, they didn't have to do that heavy work. And that's what most of the uh, blacks did. Uh, some of them were worked in the sawmills on the green chain, and uh, and there was that those kind of jobs are open to everybody. But if you weren't big, strong, and uh, you know, <laughs> it was pretty tough. Mm-hmm. A lot of the Chinese guys, you know, had a tough time uh, with jobs because of being small, and they would, they'd be strong as anybody else, but they wouldn't get the chance because they were little, you know. So it was uh, it's really particularly hard for them. But they had their own little, you know. They had their restaurants, and they took they care took care of everybody. Took care of one another. If you you'd never starve in those days, you know, like they were showing in that neighborhood. You might have somewhere else, but the, somebody would make sure you were okay. It was really quite interesting as uh, how that worked out. That the adults were, you know, they kept their own social groups, but they when it came together, they the, the, uh, somebody was hurting or something like that. You know, they'd sort of find out about it and they'd help out. I've heard, yeah, I've heard, um, I guess I've seen clips of, you, of your sister talk about how, how generous your mother was that way. Yeah, well, there were a lot of people that were generous that way, you know, particularly Mrs. Hendricks was, you know, one of the leading black ladies in the in the community, in the church. And, uh, you know, if something was going on like that, she would know. And, of course, they had the Eastern Stars, which they, which they all belonged to, and they would have the ladies part of the Masons, and they would... Um, Make sure that you know you got taken care of. Were Were you speaking of Mrs. Um, Hendricks? Were you Were you old enough to remember when the Fountain Church was bought? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I went to that church. 
until I wanted to become a Boy Scout, and then I went to St. James. Because mm-hmm. they didn't have a scout uh, troop at, at the Methodist Church, so I went to... Uh, down to, to St. James Church, which was all fine. Nobody said anything. They just said, well, that's fine. If you want to be a Boy Scout, that's where you got to go. <laughs> <laughs> Did you, but that, I mean, that church was pretty important to the community, right? Oh, very important. Very, very important. That's where everything, you know, they had their Sunday picnics and the activity going around that church well, well into the uh, 60s, I imagine. I, I, I was, I'd moved away when I in 55, but it was still going strong then. Mm-hmm. And they just end up a, you know, a real uh, Southern ba- uh, Methodist uh, uh, minister from the South, and it was really quite interesting to see the how the community would sort of, you know, you'd think you were walking in some place in Mississippi <laughs> 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 with all the singing, and they had a beautiful choir. They used to go with their choir. They used to go all over and sing at all the different churches, spirituals, and things like that. They were fabulous. And I remember Mrs. Hendricks, you know, that Nora, we used to call her, just so happy to get out. just loved to sing. I think that's where Jimi Hendrix got his music from, <laughs> his grandmother. Yeah. You're, you're also, you're quite a musical family, right? Oh, yeah, we are. My brother was a dancer. I was a dancer, singer, actor. My daughter, my brother was a choreographer, dancer, and... Uh, Actor, my sister is dancer, singer, actor, and and teacher, and choreographer, and drum teacher, and on and on. <laughs> <laughs> she get what the kids needed. She learned and teach them. So she did a lot of teaching. She's a quite successful teacher as well. When when you know when people remember that neighborhood and kind of talk about it in a historical context, is there anything in particular you? You want people to remember about it? Well, I really think the 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 thing that they should remember about, I think they, you know, like, what they were going to do was they put that highway through is what they did in a lot of North American cities. And, the, and this raged area like they have, that Vidak was going to go and sort of be above that and industrial land on the other side and kind of split the city. They did the same thing in Seattle and and this would have been not as bad as what they did in Seattle, but it would have split the city. And I think that that would have destroyed, I mean, heritage houses and the whole area in that area would just be gone. And I think that these ladies should be thought of and the people that lived in those areas should be thought of of saving the city from falling in the trap of what a lot of American and Canadian cities have at the highways ruling the areas, you know, and, and destroying, splitting the, the, the cities in in. in, in in um, in two, mm-hmm. and I think that uh, that that particular fight. I mean, people are talking about how well wonderful Vancouver is because they didn't do that, but they would have done it if it hadn't been for these ladies. If you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're, of course, they're not being thought of. Of course, the people that were going to wreck the city are now taking <laughs> the accolades for <laughs> saving it instead of the people that actually did save it. So that would be nice to be remembered. You to dress me in straight leg shoes, box back coat, and a Scotland hat. Put a $20 gold piece on my watch chain so the boys will know that I died standing pat.
That was CITR producer Ariel Fernier speaking with Chick Gibson, a former resident of Hogan's Alley. This is a special radio documentary from CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver, and we're celebrating Black History Month. We are bringing you stories, memories, and the history of Vancouver's original black community, Hogan's Alley, and we're doing this in three parts. In part three, CITR producer Ariel Fernier talks with Cornelia Wingarden who co-produced a 1994 film entitled Hogan's Alley. The film documents the previously unrecorded history of Vancouver's black community between 1930 and the late 1960s. The film examines the lives of three black women, Thelma Gibson, an African-American dance teacher, Pearl Brown, a well-known local jazz singer, and Leah Curtis, a lesbian in her mid-40s. Producers Andrea Fatona and Cornelia Wingarden explored the identities of these women, as well as the identities of a disappeared community. In the final part of our special radio documentary, CITR producer Ariel Fernier talks to Cornelia Wingarden about the film and the history of Hogan's Alley. There were no official records about Hogan's Alley. Hogan's Alley was almost like a... Well, it was hard to talk about, because even when, when we interviewed the three women in Hogan's Alley, is that... Um, first of all, there was, it was hard to locate, and um, there were no references to Hogan's Alley in, in the Vancouver archives. There was perhaps one that we found, and it was just, we couldn't tell if like the journalist had made this up from some other Hogan's Alley that was maybe perhaps in the south of, uh, of the United States, or where the, where the Hogan's Alley actually came from. And, and it, there's still some dispute about what exactly, where it exactly ran, because I think it was just sort of like an area that is was designated um, as the black area for... Um, Strathcona at that point and I think it was like it ran both parallel to Main Street and perpendicular to it so it sort of like was at it in sort of a T formation and that's the best I can I, I, I sort of came up with the photographs mostly just showed uh, what what at that point came uh, I mean what, what the journalism or what newspapers uh, we're all on about it was about the revitalization of Hogan's Alley, of of that area, and was derelict, and it was always shown as as like a, you know, completely horrible place. And uh, even there were even interviews that I think that I saw a few interviews on on my computer about uh, and about poverty and and all these. Um, Problems and really, what they wanted to do is just knock down all of Strathcona. That was really the plan. So, do you? Do but you this had been going on. Think about it as a slum. Yeah, people were thinking about it as a slum. It was, you know, um, and it was really strange because it was actually a landing pad for all different kinds of communities. And the reason that it was a landing pad is because it was just right beside the terminal, right, the train terminal. So people, immigrants, would, like, take the boat from somewhere in Europe, go across uh, uh, the Atlantic, take the train, and that's as far as they got is the CN. Um, and... Uh, 
and packed her suitcase up up the street, I guess. I'm imagining all of this because, you know, it was like the uh, the, the first Jewish uh, immigrants were there. The first Vancouver's first synagogue is, it, it was there. Um, the Italian community was there to start out with. And the black community, the black community sort of came there sort of around 1930s, although there were a lot of blacks in and out of B.C. And Andrea was very good at, about doing the research. She went all the way to Victoria and went to the museum there. And then she spent a lot. Of, we spent a lot of time in um, Vancouver archives uh, trying to track things down. But the history just wasn't there. We were working it so that we understood something about history that we were already agreed that there was a different way of telling history and and that's not just like who won the battle or who made the most money or you know who was the most famous at that point is that the best way we felt that making or 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 tracking history or trying to understand what life was like at a certain moment is to actually go into people's personal albums. And we actually uh, uh, got a lot out of that. We got um, Pearl and Thelma both let us uh, borrow some personal photographs of their of their uh, of their family, right? I think mostly Pearl actually that uh, no and Thelma too, right? Yeah, um, that lend us the photographs so that we could sort of circulate the stories and the images in a way that um, gave a closer, uh, more of a closer look about people's individual lives, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, that's sort of what we thought we were, well, that's what we did. So how did you, how did you come to this story? There's so few records. It was, it was through Leah Curtis or Kurt, right? Basically, yeah. I, um, I'm a lesbian, and I used to um, hang out in some bars or social clubs, right? And um, and I met Leah there, and um, and I I don't know. I mean, like I was I was born during the war, and the whole thing about racism was just sort of like always there. Right, because I was born during a moment in history that was, in European terms, supremely racist, and to the point of uh, genocide, and that always stuck with me. And I always sort of wanted to. Uh, I grew up here, and I wanted to. I, I've always sort of been conscious of the, well, the issue, but it was always with me. So. Even though I I grew up in Holland for for eleven years, and there were uh, many different kind of I don't know skin colors I guess, and uh, as a child I never noticed them. I I just honestly could say that I never noticed it until I was made aware of it, and I was here, and I was a teenager, and all this. Um, Civil rights movement started to happen when I was a teenager, so it really affected me. Um, was Kurt 
And Kurt was just someone that would I could get close to and talk to where we could have an honest conversation where I just didn't feel like that I was intruding ever or that or that I was othering her or we were like buddies, right? So we could talk about anything. Do you think that within the gay community she dealt with a lot of racism? Oh, she, but uh, you know, I mean, she was black, so she dealt with a lot of racism no matter where she went, within the gay community and with the, within her own community. Mm-hmm. Well, with no, not racism within her own community. Um, it was homophobia in her own community and racism when she sta- stepped out of her community. Although I have to tell you is that in some parts of the gay community, they were more. Um, accepting and tolerant of uh, I hate that word tolerant I don't know why that jumped out but (laughs) 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 but more acceptance of uh, of difference and that's sort of like where we where we where we departed from uh, uh, started from Andrea and I were very 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 different right I sort of like had uh, uh, experience in the uh, community here because um, I used to hang out also. I used, there was used to be, and nobody's ever talked about this, and nobody's ever uh, um, mentioned this bar. But there used to be an all black bar, and it was in the corner of Gore and I don't know Kiefer or Georgia or something like that. And the building's still there. I think it's called the Rice Building now. It changed its name. But it used to be called the Strathcona Beer Parlor or something like mm-hmm. that. And uh, uh, Kurt and I used to go there and have a couple of beers, and and um, and she was well known; everybody knew her, mm-hmm. that, that kind of thing. But nobody's ever—I have never heard I've, or uh, seen a reference about that particular bar. And don't think that it was. Uh, where proper people went. <laughs> was this was it still around after the Viaduct got built? What a good question. I don't remember it. After the Viaduct uh, came down and there was a new building that went up, the the area was in a, a huge turmoil all the time, right? And really, that's sort of. Um, Oh, it's long and involved, but uh, we all protested against the viaduct, and I was there when sort of like uh, meetings and one foot and the other uh, by the armory mostly. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, how, how do you feel? Because um, uh, I guess Wade Compton has talked about this before, but how the the fact that it was. Um, an actual highway wasn't built to sort of celebrate as a victory, um, but sometimes people forget about the fact that there there was still a bit of a, a huge loss there. Um, it was a couple of times since then, a couple of times since then, they tried to force the highway over and over again, and it was like as if the plan was still sticking around in, in, in City Hall, and they were determined to go ahead with it. But I think they finally have given up now. What did you hope to do when you made that documentary? What was, what was kind of, what did you want other people to get out of it? 
when they saw it. You know, I don't know if we ever planned that out. I think that Well, I'm an artist, so it's sort of like I try not second-guess what my audience um, or people who look at my stuff uh, see in it, because that, that would be just endless, and it would always be wrong, right? <laughs> so I think we just made something for ourselves, and it was fun to do, and it was fun to, to uh, investigate, and because it was so mysterious and unavailable that um, I think that we just enjoyed finding out things and it was around uh, something. That it has value after we made it is, well, it's just a bonus. <laughs> That was CITR producer Ariel Fernier talking with Cornelio Wingarden, who co-produced a 1994 film entitled Hogan's Alley. This was a special radio documentary from CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver in celebration of Black History Month. We brought you stories, memories, and the history of Vancouver's original black neighborhood, Hogan's Alley. This program will be available as a podcast, which you can find on our website at citr.ca. This program was produced by Ariel Fernier and Andy Longhurst. You can find a link to the Hogan's Alley Memorial Project on our website at citr.ca. And this is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, citr.ca, and we're syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, cjsf.ca and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst, and again, you heard a 2012 uh, special radio documentary on Hogan's Alley, uh, memories and histories uh, and reflections on uh, Vancouver's original black community neighborhood uh, centered around uh, what is what are now uh, the viaducts um, around um, Prior and Main Street in uh, Vancouver. On uh, in the downtown east side um, neighborhood. If you're interested in, uh, or you missed a par- part of that um, special radio documentary, um, that'll be included um, in the in this podcast. So you can um, find that at thecityfm.org, as well as a past ar- uh, past archive of um, of all the podcasts from the program. Again, that's www.thecityfm.org. And uh, just to let you know, we're um, broadcasting here live on CATR, 5 to 6 p.m. on Tuesdays, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, Fridays 10 to 11 a.m. And as I mentioned, you can find it anytime as a podcast um, on the website, thecityfm.org. And be sure to follow the program on Facebook by searching The City, Critical Urban Discussions, and uh, on Twitter as well. Uh, we've got the handle, the city underscore FM. 
and you should be able to find it uh, by doing a web search as well. So uh, lots of uh, lots of urban content coming out of uh, Twitter. So uh, certainly f- follow us there. We're gonna wrap up the show here. It's been uh, another. Um, week of uh, another program of critical urban discussions. We've got more coming your way next week. Uh, we actually have um, uh, on CITR a special fund drive program, and uh, we'll be uh, talking about the importance of independent and um, um, critical um, radio programs like like the city and uh, everything else that you can find on CITR as well. My name's Andy Longhurst. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be back next week uh, with more critical urban discussions. Have a wonderful week.